Today's scripture reading is from Acts 9, verses 1 to 19. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate or drank. Now there is a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call in your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is chosen. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear now the words of Thomas Nagel, professor of law and philosophy at New York University. In speaking of the fear of religion, I am talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem I have is not a rare condition, and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. One of the tendencies it supports is the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about human life, including everything about the human mind. 
I say it is just as irrational to be influenced in one's beliefs by the hope that God does not exist as by the hope that God does. Thomas Nagel is talking about a cosmic authority problem he has, not wanting to be subject to the authority of God himself. He doesn't want there to be a God. And in our city and in our culture, he reflects what many of us feel. We don't want God because we don't want to submit to any authority over us. We have a desire for independence and for autonomy. And this isn't just people who are not believers or Christians. Christians have cosmic authority problems too. We all want the benefits of knowing God, but we don't want to submit to his authority over us. We want to trust God as long as it means we get to choose our own way. We want to obey God as long as he tells us to do what we already decided we wanted to do. As we continue our series in the book of Acts, we are going to find that this cosmic authority problem is central to the story we have here. This is the most famous story of a Christian being converted to Christianity in world history. We meet here Saul, an enemy of the church. And in Saul's story is a story for our day because Saul meets Jesus. And everyone in this room, everyone is also going to meet Jesus. If the gospel is true, and it is, verifiably, historically proven to be true, we will all meet Jesus. And when we meet Jesus, what will it be like? Well, we'll learn some surprising things about meeting with Jesus through this story of Saul. Because Saul learned exactly what Thomas Nagel was talking about. Despite his zeal for his religion, despite his strong moral codes, despite his self-righteous belief in himself, he actually had a cosmic authority problem. And then he met Jesus. And meeting Jesus for Saul was traumatic. It was dangerous. It was undoing. And it was redefining. Because meeting Jesus is always like that. Three points today. Firstly, meeting Jesus will shock you. Secondly, meeting Jesus will undo you. Thirdly, meeting Jesus will recreate you. It will shock you, undo you, and recreate you. Let's look at the text. Firstly, it will shock you. We have Saul here breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord as we pick up this story. Now, you would think, he, is he some dissolute robber? Is he some bandit? No, 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 no. This is the Apostle Paul before he was Paul. This is the Apostle Paul when he was Saul before he was Paul. He was Saul, the religious zealot. He was Saul, the Jewish Pharisee. He was Saul, the Christian bounty hunter, whose profession was hunting down and imprisoning Christians. And Saul didn't do it for the money. He did it because he believed it. 
He's breathing threats and murder against the early Christian community. In chapter 8, he's called the one who ravaged or smashed and severely injured the church. He's public enemy number one of the Christian church, a significant Jewish leader whose job it is to get Christians imprisoned, possibly and hopefully for him stoned for simply believing in Jesus. And in the middle of one of these trips on the road to Damascus, Saul meets Jesus, or better, Jesus ambushes Saul. And in this astonishing encounter, Saul is shocked. He hears a voice from the sky. He's Jewish enough to know the only one who can speak from the sky is God himself. There's lights, there's voices. This is a heavenly intercession onto earth. But the voice that speaks from the sky and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is the very person that he thinks is a fraud. To Saul, Jesus was a blaspheming heretic who claimed to be God. He's a fraud. He needs to be stopped. His people need to be shut up. And here he meets this fraud, except this fraud has risen from the dead. Several things shock Saul from this encounter. Firstly, Jesus is not who he thought he was. Jesus is not some fool who made some ridiculous teachings. He's not some fraud who claimed to be God. He's not a blasphemer. He's risen from the dead. He is God himself. The supposed fraud is alive after death. The idea that a human could actually be God was shocking. It's shocking to us. It was shocking to him. It's astounding in its philosophical implications. It upended his whole understanding of who Jesus was, why he came, and what that meant for the world. Who can rise from the dead except the author of life and death himself, God? He was shocked, men and women, by what we need to be shocked by. The shocking idea that a human being who claims to be God can be God and could have come to save us from our sins. Saul's first shocking thing was, Jesus is not who I thought he was. The second shock Saul got is, I'm not who I thought I was. I thought I was doing God's work, God's way. I thought I was a religiously devoted leader of the work of God himself. Oh no, oh no, I'd bought a lie. I was deceived. I was wrong about Jesus and therefore I was wrong about who God is. My doubts and skepticism about Jesus should themselves have been doubted because they were dead wrong. More deeply than that, Saul realized he just wasn't wrong about Jesus and wrong about who God was. He was wrong morally before that God. His religious devotion did not stop him from being deeply sinful and persecuting Jesus. His sincerity of beliefs, his consistent moral code did not stop him from being on the wrong side with God. Men and women, this is what we need to know. Saul realized, perhaps for the first time, what he would remind the Roman church in Romans 3, chapter, uh, verse 9. He said, I, we have already seen that All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. None who understands. 
none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Paul is beginning to realize what we need to realize, that no amount of sincerity of religious belief or conduct, no amount of religious code observance is going to get you right with God. What gets you right with God is when you are right with Jesus, because Jesus is God, and what you think about God is what counts with God. So what you think about Jesus is what you think about God. How you respond to Jesus is how you respond to God. Do you submit to Him? Do you trust Him? Do you obey Him? Do you love Him? That is the defining answer to whether you are right or wrong with God. How are you with Jesus? And he was on the wrong side of that question. Jesus was not who he thought he was. He was not who he thought he was. He was much more deeply flawed, wrong, broken, guilty, and sinful before the God whom he claimed to worship. Finally, God himself was not who he thought he was. Saul believed in a God of strict rules and strong anger, a God who punished his enemies and authorized people like Saul to go and do physical violence against those enemies. That's the God he thought he was serving. He claimed to believe in the God of the Old Testament, but in his murderous anger and self-righteous use of violence, he displayed who he actually thought God was. And it wasn't the God who is. Here's the ironic thing of this story. He is trying to go after the great enemy of God whom he thinks at his deepest inner being needs to be punished, and he thinks it's Jesus. Who's the great enemy of God in the story? He is. Who's the great enemy of God in our story with God? We are. And what does God do with his true enemy? What does God do with you and I? The same kind of thing he did with Saul. What would you expect God to do in a situation where his enemy was oppressing and ravaging his people? If you were God, what would you do? Someone was being that terrible, what would you do? Would you kill him? Saul would certainly think you would. Would you at least shame him? Imprison him? scandalize him, cancel him, what would you do? It's a good thing we're not God, because what did God do? God found him on a road and spoke to him, appeared to him, asked him, why are you persecuting me? Men and women, the God of this universe has a kind of love that is so big the universe can't handle it. It's the kind of love that loved Saul in his self-righteous delusion. Paul would later write that he was filled with a self-righteousness about arresting and persecuting Christians. He says in Galatians 1, he says, I was advancing, sorry, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He was completely self-righteously thinking He was doing the right thing, and he was deluded, and God loved him there in that self-righteous delusion, and God does that for you and me. 
wherever we are in our journey of faith. We justify moving away and being independent of God all the time. We find good reasons to do that. We become self-righteous in our choices, always having a vindication for why we do these things. When I was a skeptic, I said, well, I don't believe in that because Christians are all hypocrites. Until a fellow law student looked me in the eye and said, okay, well, we're a bunch of law students in a study group right now. Which one of us isn't a hypocrite? (laughs) Which one of us lives up to our own standards? I said, none, right. How about the political parties? They filled with hypocrites? Yeah. How about the banks? Oh, yeah. How about this law school? Oh, we're all hypocrites. We're all opposed. Right. So find me a group of humans that aren't filled with hypocrites. She said, I'll wait. She's still waiting. We're humans. We're hypocrites. That's no excuse at all. It's the self-righteous articulation to vindicate me doing what I wanted to do. He loved Saul despite his self-righteous delusion. Secondly, he loved Paul because of his self-corrupting independence. Saul is religious. The religiousness that Saul has has made him murderous and angry. And the depth of that wrong, that brokenness, that sin does not repel God's love. Men and women, it attracts it because God's love is not like ours. God's love is based and filled with God's compassion for our brokenness and our sinfulness and our rebellion and our corruption. His love is a love we can barely understand because he sees us being at enmity with him and he sees through the enmity to the emptiness inside and he knows that we were made to be filled with him and we're trying to fill it with a substitute. And he knows and he loves that and his compassion is attracted to that. God's love overshadows, no, is attracted to our independence, our opposition, our enmity. Finally, I want, I want to note one thing here for those of us who are Christians who think so far this message is for someone else. You know there's a Saul in your life? Someone you think would never be interested in spiritual things or Christianity. They they actually kind of intimidate you from even talking about it. Note what Jesus says to Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? You are kicking against the goads. You know what a goad is? Well, if you were an original reader, you would know exactly what a goad is. A goad is what someone who's driving a couple of oxen uses, it's a pointed stick to goad them if they're wandering off, say, the track that you are plowing, or they just decide to stop and not keep going. You prod them with a goad, and if they kick against it, they kick into the point and they hurt themselves. To kick against the goad is to do something futile that's hurting yourself. You see what God is saying? I've been speaking to you. You've been persecuting the church. Have you not noticed the love they had? 
by the way, you were there when Stephen made his speech and was stoned to death, and you saw his face shining like the sun, and you saw him say, God, forgive them. You saw the forgiveness in his heart that's so unnatural, so beautiful. I have been chatting in your ear, and you haven't been listening. So now I'm ambushing you on the road. Astonishing love. Implications. If you're here, and you are not yet a Christian, I need you to know this. There's nothing you've ever done that disqualifies you from the deep, deep love of Jesus. There is no sin which disqualifies you, which puts you outside the reach of God's love. If you're a battered Christian and you're just trying to come back to faith and you're so ashamed of what, is, what you've done and what has happened to you, you think, I have to work my way back into God's good graces. You don't understand. God's good graces are infused with God's grace, his sovereign grace in Jesus. You can't earn it. He just gives it. Ask for it. It's yours. I remember I was really struggling when I was a new Christian with this idea because I was messing up quite badly in my first year or two as a Christian, and I was very ashamed to go back with God and um, the guy who had heard my story just looked at me. He was older and he was wiser. And he said, Dan, you remind me of a guy who hears that there's water nearby and goes to a bunch of rocks and with a pick and a, and a hammer starts hammering away at the stone to try and get to the water you hear is, is in the area. But your ear is filled with the noise of something. And I need to tell you, look up, because that noise is Niagara Falls, filled with the bounty of God's grace. You don't need to hammer away. Just walk into the waterfall. I said, well, if I walk into the waterfall, I'm going to drown. It's not, oh, he says, okay, bad analogy, smaller waterfall, but you get the idea. You're beside a waterfall and you're hammering away. God's grace is bountiful enough for you. Everybody wherever you are in your journey of faith, Jesus is here now waiting to meet with you with the astonishing infinitude of his love and grace. It reaches to as deep as your sin goes. The verse that that man shared with me is a verse I'll never forget from Romans chapter five. He said, where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you meet with Jesus, the depth, the length, and the height of his love will shock you. Secondly, meeting Jesus is not just shocking, it's upsetting, it's upending. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. 
Paul here, Saul, or Paul, has had an extraordinary thing happen to him. He's confronted by the fact that Jesus is God. He's confronted with the fact that Jesus, whom he thought was dead and buried, is alive and God. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Saul doesn't think he's persecuting Jesus. He is persecuting the church, and Saul finds out something quite stunning. You persecute my church, you persecute me. You criticize my church, you criticize me. You cannot separate me from my people. And you cannot separate them from me. So I just want to say for a moment to those of us, particularly who are Christian, we need to hear this as much as the secular culture probably needs to hear this or more. In the church today, leader after leader has made a cottage industry of telling us how poor and messed up the church is and how they have the solution. Here's their video series, here's their book, come and have them as the speaker, they will tell you how to fix all that is wrong. Congregant after congregant, member after member in the past few years of churches all over the world have spilled out their critiques about the church and how it related to COVID and didn't relate to COVID and related to each other. Okay, I need to say something, enough. When you puke on the church, You're puking on the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride. Think about that next time you decide to go out for lunch and have roast church for lunch. Paul is rebuked. Then Paul is commanded to go somewhere. And Paul is blinded. And the result of this is that Saul... Or Paul, the leader of a movement of people to persecute and oppress Christians, now is totally dependent on others. He's stripped of his strength. He's stripped of his ability to even manage the streets of a city by himself. He is completely unmade. Now, this is an extraordinary event. This doesn't happen to everyone who who becomes a Christian or anything that they become blinded. I get that. But there's something timeless here in what has happened. This is extraordinary, almost an exaggerated case of something timelessly true that happens to you and I. And that is this, that Jesus in his love will come and meet whoever, wherever. That's Paul on the road to Damascus. He loves sinners in their sin. But he loves us too much to leave us there. And so his love is going to drive deeply into them to drive the sin out of them. Beneath Paul's religious zeal against Christianity, there were some deeper issues that we find out about if we read the rest of the New Testament. Paul was a coveter. He coveted things. In Romans chapter 7, he says this, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the command, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Paul coveted things. Can you relate? Paul was ambitious for personal gain and progress in his profession. In Galatians 1, let me read that verse again, and let's look at it through slightly different eyes. Verse 13, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. All good. Now listen. 
and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. How did he know that? He knew it because he noticed it, because he was looking for it, because it was important to him. He was ambitious for gain, competing against other people in his profession. Now listen after having heard those. Listen to him in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks they have reason for confidence in their own achievements or flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's when Jewish male kids were circumcised. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, whatever gain I had. You hear him? Proud. Grasping. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Upended. Paul's just like you and me, folks. He may have been more zealously religious than the average Torontonian, but he struggled with pride, with coveting, with ambition, progress, and competitiveness. Doesn't he sound just like the average young professional in Toronto? Yes, he does. He just sounds like every other human in the world. And Jesus strips that from him. He strips him intellectually. He proves that Jesus, the one he thought was a fraud, is actually God. And then he strips him of his physical capacity. He makes him blind. He takes his leadership away. The man who is leading this entourage now has to be led by the entourage. Can you see the reversal? The one who is giving commands has to take commands. The one who led is led around. The one who is totally independently driving this is now totally dependent of others driving this. What happened to Saul, men and women, happens to each and every one of us when we truly meet with Jesus. His love astonishes us, and then his love undoes us because his love is a holy love that wants holiness in the depth of our being and in the heart of our soul. It deconstructs us. I know it's popular now to talk about deconstructing our faith and deconstructing Jesus. You don't get to deconstruct Jesus. Jesus deconstructs you. Everything Saul had built his life upon, Jesus swept away. Paul was wrong. Paul was lost. Paul was blind. Paul wasn't leading in the right way. He needed to be led in the proper way. He was going wrong. Paul's God was wrong. Paul's sense of himself was flawed. His whole way of seeing God, himself, others, his life needed to be redone. You see, you can't be remade until you're unmade. You can't be recreated until you die. And that's the point here. The deconstruction of you is essential to becoming and staying a Christian. Because when you come to Jesus, you come to the God, the creator, the recreator, and ruler of the universe. You come to him when he wants to meet you, and you come to him on his terms. Last time I went to the airport, I saw a kiosk. I think it was CIBC kiosk. And someone, hey, do you have a minute? Can you stop trying to sell me a credit card? 
Too many of us think that God is like that marketer trying to sell you a CIBC credit card on your way to your departure gate. Do you have five minutes to spare to slip me into your life, your agenda, your world? That is not the Jesus who's here. The Jesus who's here is the cosmic ruler, the emperor of all things, period. And he bids you come to him for the forgiveness of your sins, but in his biddings, he bids you to come to die for your own agenda, your own ways, your own longings, your own dreams, for they indeed are part of the brokenness and sinfulness he has come to redeem you from. So if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I need to tell you that if you want to become a Christian, you must be prepared to put everything on the table. For when you come to Jesus, you come to him and say, this was my life. Make of it what life you wish. I remember when I decided to come to Jesus, I was in university, and I remember coming to him, and I was negotiating, as many of us try and do, and I remember talking to him, and I said, you know, I'm willing to come and become a Christian, but I want you to promise me one thing in return, um, that, that, that I... <laughs> that I will never like go be a priest or a pastor or something, be like one of those guys who tells people about Jesus every week. Just don't do that to me. Here I am. How did that go for me? If you want eternal life, men and women, if you want full communion with the God who is, if you want the full forgiveness of your sins, you need to meet the God who is as he is. And he is the ruler and creator of everything. And he knows what's best for how you should live and who you should be. So you need to lay it down. Christian, this is the Christian life and there is no other. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Full stop. Grace Toronto. When we get together in smaller groups or in our official small groups, do we challenge each other to lay it down? Do we confront each other on our pride, our ambition, our coveting, our desires for our own comfort? Or do we merely socialize? filling our times with people sharing their opinions about Bible verses and sharing their dreams for vacations? Have we so Canadianized our times together that we have emptied our fellowship of the loving confrontation of our selfishness and the laying down of our lives before the cosmic king of our souls? Are we too busy along with the culture trying to deconstruct our faith or are we letting Jesus deconstruct our soul and reconstruct our lives? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in Nazi Germany. He was part of the confessing movement that, that resisted Hitler when Hitler was in power in Germany and Nazism was murdering millions of people, primarily Jews, through the orchestrated death camp movement we now call the Holocaust. He resisted that accommodation. He was actively involved in trying to get Hitler removed, even killed. He was eventually arrested and murdered by his regime. He wrote a book 
called The Cost of Discipleship, whose most famous line is simple. When Christ calls someone, he bids them come and die. Christ bids you come to die to you. Come to him. Die to yourself. It's the only way he comes, and it's the only way we can meet him. Now, why would anyone sign up for that? Because it's the only way you can be remade. And that's our final point. When you meet Jesus, he remakes you. Jesus, we pick up our story with Ananias, the typical Christian. The Lord says, go meet with this man named Saul. He, he is praying. <laughs> he has seen in a vision that you're going to come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias is like, hold up. Do you know this guy, Lord? He's the chief enemy. He's got authority to bind us. He's got authority over everyone in town. Are you crazy? Go. For he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. You see, here we meet a remade Saul. When Ananias finally obeys God, what's Saul been doing? Fasting and praying for three days, confessing to God, trying to remake his life before God, communing with the God he thought he knew and now knows so much differently, praising him for forgiveness, being thrilled by his astonishing love. Saul, the oppressor of Christianity, is now going to be, and I quote, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. What does that sound like? Who carries the name of someone to all these different people? Ambassadors do. Paul's gone from being an oppressor of the church to being an ambassador for Jesus. Total transformation. How does that happen? Because the one who meets with us is the one who met with the cross and did exactly this for us so we could do it with him. You see, Jesus is the one who showed the world the astonishing love by becoming human and inhabiting this sinful world and being rejected by sinful people. And then he allowed himself to be undone, deconstructed, killed, hung on a cross, sacrificed for you and for me. Undone he was. He became a curse for us. He bore the weight of the guilt of our sin and he did it for us. And then recreation. He rose from the dead with a new body to inhabit a new reality. He did it first. And now he calls you to come after him, meeting with him and following his steps. Come to him, experience his astonishing love. Let him undo you. Submit to his gracious will. Let him remake you in his renewed image and he will make you an ambassador for his love. Let us be that kind of community. Let us be that kind of church. 
a church that meets with Jesus regularly and helps people who don't know Jesus meet with Jesus savingly. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and for your grace. Help us now to meet with you and lay it all out for you to change and remake and recreate. We are not renovations. We are gut jobs. Gut us from the inside out and remake of us something beautiful that looks a lot like you. I pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. We have, we have uh, time for maybe one Q&A, I'm told. Um, there was a couple questions about um, your point about church criticism, so uh, I'm trying to summarize this. Uh, what might gospel accountability look like in light of the church and the harsh criticism leveraged against her? Uh, when is it appropriate to raise constructive criticism? How do I balance criticism with uh, complacency? Uh, that's a really good question, and I don't have all the answers because they're very mm, different. So what I would say first of all is criticizing a church for a lack of competency is what I would call stepping beyond the line. You're not holding a church accountable when you say, you know, their worship was substandard or something like that. These are people who've tried their best to lead you into worship. These are people who've tried their best to, to make the coffee and preach the sermons or whatever. So when you're criticizing a lack of competency, I think you're clearly beyond the line. If you're calling someone accountable for actual sinful behavior, that's different. That is a desire for the holiness of the church. And then if you're doing that though, there is an appropriate way to do that. So if you're going to the people like the elders of a church, the leaders of the church, and, and calling it out first privately, and then if they're not listening more publicly, that's an appropriate way. But if you're just going to lunch and, and, and talking all about what you think is, is sinful behavior or lack of accountability, that itself is, is divisive and deconstructive. Go to the church itself. Encourage them. There is a loving way that has been um, laid out. In the scriptures, there's a gospel way to deal with it, which aims for the restoration of the church, the proclamation of the holiness of God and the guarding of it and the, the repentance of those who are wronging the church and being unholy. So there are ways, but the, the gospel way is personal and restorative. Uh, right now, uh, if you just go and you talk to people about it who can't do anything about it, it's not restorative. And so I find that we too often are doing that rather than the other. So although accountability, I, as many of you know, I submitted uh, to multiple levels of accountability over my own conduct in the past year, and I rejoiced over the things I learned about what it means to be a leader and how much more careful I need to be. And some of the ways that that was handled were very appropriate. People coming to our leadership and our leadership challenging me and, and doing an investigation of it. And I think that that's totally appropriate. Mm. But if we are not handling accountability issues in a biblical way, we can actually damage the church even through a desire, a righteous desire for accountability. There is a gospel goal and then there are gospel ways of achieving the goal and both together beautify the Jesus and beautify the church and honor him. Yeah, yeah. so Great. those are some ways. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I cre clearly created 
what we call psychological noise with those questions. Not at all, no. <laughs> but I do think that in this day, when we love to deconstruct and criticize, we can fall into a cultural pattern where instead of building up the bride of Christ, we are actually damaging it. The bride of Christ is Jesus, he says. You can't separate them. So when you're thinking of what you're going to do, think of Jesus and how he can be beautified by your next step. What is that next step? Pray and ask his spirit to tell you what that next step should be. Let's pray, and then we will sing a song of response. Father, I pray that your church would take the beauty and the holiness of your church ever more seriously, but we would also take the astonishing love that you have for people ever more seriously. Would we apply it first to ourselves and then to others? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for the song of response.